Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and the episode that you're about to hear is one of many that we actually recorded a few weeks ago in the early stages of this increasingly complicated uh, coronavirus situation we're, we're going through here in the United States and, of course, in Italy. So we certainly wanted to make sure that we had new episodes available for the foreseeable future, and hopefully we will. And if not, we'll start coming back to you via Skype, uh, making sure that we can get together and give you something to listen to, take your mind off the situation. Hopefully everybody out there as well, all of us here on the podcast team are doing okay, and we hope the same for you and our listeners here in the United States and in Italy and around the world. Uh, if you're hunkered down, hopefully you get a chance to enjoy catching up on some episodes, and we're going to keep putting them out as long as we can. Also, if you haven't already, you can take a look at our YouTube web series on our YouTube channel, Greetings from Italian America. That should keep you distracted for a good long time and catch up a little bit with us. So hopefully this thing will blow over and we'll all be able to get together for a big bowl of macaroni with the people we love real soon. So we're thinking of everybody out there. We're praying for everybody, and hopefully you'll enjoy a little distraction from the team at the Italian American Podcast. that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great from the moment you're a small bambino you eat pizza you drink vino then they make you roly-poly you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I am your moderator, John Viola. And we are coming to you from Manhattan, New York, right in the heart of what is increasingly a plague-ridden city. Uh, coronavirus is here, so we're going to try to... Italians have... know how to handle plague. Yeah, you're right. That's just We have a lot of history. Yeah, we, we make it through a good plague. We did bring it to uh, Europe. Florence lost half its population like 1356. Yeah. We yeah. bounced back. Yeah, we, we made it. Back. We're here. And as you can hear... St. Rocco. Do, can, I, can I... Do you know why St. Rocco is so popular in the south of Italy? Did he save us from the plague? Correct. Really? There's a reason behind it, because when the Black Plague hit, the towns in the south of Italy turned to their local go-to pa- patients, yeah, sure. right? But what happened was nothing was happening because the plague had to go through, let's say, six-week gestation period. And about the time that after six weeks, they're like, okay, patron X, you're not doing your job. And they turned to St. Rocco, from, who's really Montpellier, in France is where is where Saint Rocco's for his relics are, and Saint Rocco had been known as a as a patron disease. They turned to Saint Rocco, and because the timing was right, 
just when a plague would start to ebb. It'd be after like that six weeks period. So as soon as they start playing the St. Rocco, the, <laughs> the way plague the went away. Ran, yeah. The plague ran away, went away. So then it would hit the next town. And the next town would go into panic. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I'm sure our ancestors wouldn't take it in a jovial sense the fact they lived through the plague. Right. I mean, we are we are the descendants of plague survivors. Sure. Yeah. Um. They would pay. pay they would pray to their patron, and their patron after six weeks, nothing would happen. And then it'd say, oh, listen, the town over in the valley, they prayed to St. Rocco, and all of a sudden <laughs> the plague was gone, and they'd start praying to St. Rocco, and just because it would be the natural sure. period where the plague would kind of run out, all of a sudden they'd say, wow, St. Rocco worked again. <laughs> and I love St. Rocco. I'm not anti-St. <laughs> Rocco. So St. Rocco took off. I mean, he's even in the north of Italy, but, I mean, as the plague would move north, people kept praying to St. Rocco, and... You can almost find, like, you know that there's a coronavirus map now? Yeah. There's a kind of a map where you can follow the plague and how St. Rocco took off. Now, my grandfather's family's from San Mango Cilento. They have a field outside of town with a chapel to St. Rocco. From the plague. From the plague, because one of the richer families in town, someone got the plague, and he prayed, he said to St. Rocco, if I survive the plague, I will build a chapel to you outside of town and i will have um you know have a mass there for your feast every year which only stopped recently wow because the bishop that's another story for, <laughs> for political reasons not for sure. lack of devotion and the reason i bring it up is that the reason why these saint rocco chapels were outside of town were you buried plague victims outside sure. of town yeah because remember cemeteries don't really take off until 1806 sure yeah so Morocco comes in and imposes the cemetery before that in the south of italy you were buried underneath the parish church. Yeah. Your bones were laid there. Weren't you telling me this week there's another... I mean, obviously, everybody knows coronavirus is an interesting topic, right? And, and of course, pertinent to us because the first real landfall that it made in Europe was, unfortunately, over in Italy. And it's been bad. I mean, there's thousands of cases at this point. It's the third largest center in the world after China and South Korea. Weren't you telling me that one Italian town has taken... Yeah, tell, tell the audience about that. St. Blaise is the patron of Bronte, and... Bronte posted on Instagram. Uh, Bronte in which region? Sicily. Yeah. The pistachio capital Where all Sicily. the green pistachios come from. Yeah. And Bronte, I, I think it was 1536. Don't quote me on the year, but they're like, St. Blaise, you saved us, San Biagio. You saved us from the plague in 1536. Save us now. You know, wow. Protect us now. Which I thought was fantastic because I love to see yeah. nothing's better than getting your, your patron saint out. <laughs> That's true. A, a penitential procession. Yeah. In honor of an impending plague. That's amazing, really. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting. I know that we, we got a serious thing here, but I think it's kind of, this is a, a timely conversation for what's going on in the news, is that in Italy, there's two different types of feasts. There's the feast day of the saint, which is the dies natalis in Latin. The day of birth is the day of death. The day you die, right. this life you're born to the next. And there's also another quality, another saint's feast day that was very popular in the south of Italy and to maintain some places is the transfer of the relics. Right. So when the relics were taken from point A into the... Well, like St. Nicholas of Bari, December right. 6th is, I think, the transference of the relics. December 6th, no, May May right. 8th. Is the relic. So that was the day that we got the relics back? Well, got them the, for the first the time. you guys or went and absconded got them. Stole them. <laughs> relocated them. <laughs> no, I mean, the bodies meant well. We brought them back. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, that's right. Brought them where they should have been. Turkey, yeah. Turkey we didn't wasn't steal anything. Yeah. No. Turkey wasn't real big on 
Christian bishops. So although they were the smuggled Ottomans. out under pork, right? That was the whole thing. They smuggled them out under pork. <laughs> so that's they, exactly yeah. how we would do <laughs> it. It's true, something like that. I could be wrong. One of the saints got. How smuggled. would you say smuggle saint relics in body? Oh. <laughs> but the third. We wouldn't say smuggled. <laughs> Why would we say smuggled? Uh. How would Nona describe the transfer of the relics of Saint Nicholas? One of We didn't smuggle them. We brought them back. <laughs> Well, he's a big day there. And the third denomination of feast day are days marking the re- the actual miracle when right. a town was spared from the plague. Right, which is why San Gennaro has three feast days. Yeah, that's in Naples. Uh, well, Naples. Not, I mean, nobody has calamity like Naples. <laughs> that's in true. Naples, you got Saracens <laughs> plague, and you got that volcano that just never seems to take a vacation. Now, in San Mango, their patron was uh, Our Lady of Chains. And never even Up heard into of the that. 16th century, Madonna Catena. Sure, she's big. She's actually the patron of Chapelou. She's big. <laughs> she's big. Well, no, seriously, Our Lady of no, Chains is, is breaking the fetters. Yeah. The Virgin Mary breaking the fetters. She's wow. holding chains. And San Mango, she was the patron. And I don't know. I, f- I, I should know this. I don't know if it was a pest. I think it was a pestilence that they were under. Or was it didn't rain? Um, and nothing was working out. And there was some from, it's just a true story. Someone from Sicily is, is there and says, listen, we've had a lot, of, a lot of luck with Santa Rosalia. You should pray to Santa Rosalia. So San Mango prayed to Santa Rosalia, and they were spared, and she became the patroness of the town. Wow. You know, because na- remember, San Gennaro in Naples was switched out for a couple of years. Yeah, they, they've gone through a bunch St. of St. Anthony the Abbot. Yeah. San Gennaro wasn't paying the bills. <laughs> you don't show you up know, for work. That's, that's, <laughs> but that's a very Neapolitan. You don't, um, and... In November every year, San Mango has a penitential procession marking the recurrence of the day when Santa Rosalia spared the town. It's really interesting. And I believe in all If you're listening to this, I actually believe in all this. No, I agree with you. You know, you have all academics. And I don't know if that's going to write me off with some people. I really don't care. Well, I mean, everybody but talks about San Gennaro, the miracle of San Gennaro, and the liquefaction of the blood in the years that it doesn't happen. Something always befalls Naples. Yeah, and I'm I'm not I'm not. There's a difference between science, and I believe in science 100 percent, and faith, and I think they're compatible. I'm not saying that I don't believe at all that they're incompatible. I think they build on each other. Yeah. But I think so often these conversations are kind of held by Italian American academics with that kind of um, a condescension. Yeah, I agree. Oh, you know, like we're going to talk about peasant beliefs and rituals. I actually buy into it. As a person of faith, I feel it's a, not that I have any imprimatur on this, but I just feel that. It's part of the spiritual life of the south of Italy. I think everyone sitting at this table, you know, can can appreciate that uh, there is a decidedly different attitude towards the old school traditions, especially the ones centering around religion yeah. between Italians and Italian-Americans. Oh, completely. I mean, nobody gets married in church anymore in Italy because they think it's one of those, like, nobody silly gets, things. It's that, happening. It's, I think it's worse here. Well, it's, more no. it's interesting here. that we talk about that because it's a recurring theme on the show that we are, in many ways, a lifeboat or a time capsule for a lot of Italian traditions that have gone by the wayside in Italy. And what we're actually here to talk about today is a similar case. So we wanted to, frankly, put together a day of recording because we don't know what's going to happen with this coronavirus, and we may not be able to get together in the coming weeks. So we wanted to record as much content as possible so we can keep delivering to all of you out there. I went out and bought a huge Casa Cavallo. <laughs> I'm not lying I to believe you. But what we we're going to have emergency Casa Cavallo. <laughs> no, because the Casa Cavallo... I'm going to tell you for those if, who don't if know. If disaster strikes, I'm going to Pat's house. Oh, me too. You know how much macaroni I got? Yeah, I've been stocking and up And I have macaroni. good macaroni. I mean, I got I don't, I don't, got all top shelves. <laughs> I believe you do. But Kachikov, for those who don't know, because a lot of people through interaction, I've come to learn 
we say stuff and they don't know. Gacha Kavalo, Gaza Kavalo is the Neapolitan pronunciation in Sigurlidin for Gacha Kavalo, yeah. which is a, a cheese, a pasta filata cheese, all through the south, it's common all through the south of Italy and in the Balkans. And uh, it's called Gacha Kavalo because Gacha's cheese, Gaza Navuidan, and Cavallo's horse. Because, I mean, the, the theory is that they used to hang the cheese off the horse for oh, trips right. or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But that's it. If I think people should do rushes on Italian food. <laughs> you like you people, better be storing up on food. And yeah. if you want to buy, instead of Purell, they should be buying Biancolini. <laughs> you go in the Biancolini business? Yes. I got the bottles for My this. grandmother, you know my grandmother used to call it Lacqua de Cervelle? Water of the brain. I don't know. No idea. That's why. fascinating. Why she they... used to call bleach that. Well, that's gonna that's around. gonna come up in episode two because what we're here to talk about today, we're gonna do two parts of this because we want to talk about Italian language. We talk about the language so much on the show, about the academic approach to it, about preserving it, about the sort of debate between what's a dialect, what's a regional language, and what is our role as the preservers of a lot of linguistic traditions that are gone in Italy, as Pat talks about. We're going to talk about the history of Italian, the standardized, built from the Florentine, taught in Italian schools, Italian. And then we're going to evolve the conversation forward about dialects versus regional languages, the minority languages of Italy, and our Italian-American pigeon. I think in the future, we're going to have another episode just about Italian-American Italian. I think it's safe to say that the three of us, even from the day we started the Power Hour, have wanted to address language. I know, Pat, you're not terribly enthusiastic about I the hate camera. this conversation. It's up there neck and neck with Source for us. You crazy. love this conversation. <laughs> no, because I don't it's, know what it's you're like talking about. Because someone spoke to me, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Toscano out, out of um, Detroit, and he was talking about how the local language or where he comes from in Sicily, no one speaks it in Sicily, and they all speak it in Detroit. And the Sicilians laugh. I, I I can't hear this story anymore. Yeah, it's frustrating. So Italy's ha-ha. And see, I think my language, Campania's in the best shape linguistically in Italy. Well, it's up there. I mean, we're going to get to where these languages are today because don't forget, like, you know, in and we'll what, aggra- but what aggravates and- me is, like, you know, when I say to Ro, how do you say that in Malays? It, it's not a joke. Yeah. It's a serious question I have because... Malays is uh, the the dialect. I'll say the languages of Puglia of of the of the old Tedeti body and the old province system. They are a huge part of our patrimony. Yeah, and very and distinct. People they laugh at these local languages because they feel that because they speak like they come off of right now. I I think Spain's got the best system. What is the Spanish system? The Spanish system is you you're bilingual in school. They teach you Spanish, and they like, if you're in Galicia now. Catalonia is a little bit more political. Yeah, sure. So now there's kids now in Catalonia who can't speak Spanish, and that was done on purpose. Wow. Um, but Galicia, kids speak Gallego, and kids speak Spanish, and there's television in, in the language of Galicia, and uh, which is much closer to Portuguese. Which is ni- the, the language of Galicia is 90% Portuguese, 95% Portuguese. And they coexist happily. So why can't Italy have kids learning Italian and Neapolitan or Italian and Malays in school? Well, it's interesting, right? Because you look at the map of Europe, right? And be it a linguistic map or be it a political map, and the idea of nation-state, right? And and Spain's been a nation-state since 1492, and Italy's only been one since 1860. And, you know, you look around and you think about the evolution of... And look, it's it's in the news more than ever, right? Like, upon Brexit, you have conversations about Irish separatism, Northern Irish separatism from the UK. Scottish independence uh, has been an issue, and there was a, a referendum on it not two, three, four, year, five years ago now. 
obviously, if you follow the news, you can see what's going on in Catalonia with these independence movements, non-binding referendums. Half the leadership of the region, which was an autonomous region, is in jail. Let's not forget Sicily. In jail, not for those who are not following it. They're not in jail because of crim. I mean, it's they're in jail for criminal. leading the independence movement. Yeah, independence. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, you, you look at the idea of an autonomous region in Italy, right? In Sicily, 1947, when the constitution was being formed, 46, 47, there was a serious independence movement on the island of Sicily. So the compromise was here. You are an autonomous region. What does that mean? And we're going to get to it in the conversation, but you could look at Veneto and the conversations there about independence, about language. So it's interesting to compare. Veneto's got a strong argument. Sure they do, of course. They were a country for a thousand years up until 1798, till Napoleon went in and broke up the, the party. Yeah. They had a functioning democracy. Sure. They had really an enviable democracy. I mean, yeah. I mean, it worked. It worked. You know, they, for, they were a tiny place with a huge impact on the world. An overseas empire. An overseas empire. Probably if Columbus hadn't opened up the new world to Europe, I mean, that kind of drained Venice's yeah. power because Venice was an Atlantic power, trading-wise. Yeah. They always, I always find interesting, you know, 1492 is such a fundamental year in the history of the world, right? Obviously because of the Columbian Exchange. But what people also don't think about is, you know, 1492 is hot on the heels of 1453 and the fall of Constantinople to the Turks. 1492 is when the final Muslim rulers of southern Spain are expelled and the country's re-Catholicized by Ferdinand and Isabella. You know, you're, you're talking about all of this impacting trade, which we're talking about now with the coronavirus, and when trade changes, the importance and the influence of places like Venice change and then directly impacts the future history of Italy. So there's a lot of identity tied up in those changes, and we're going to talk about it here. We've done a lot to put together, the best we can, a little bit of a history of the Italian language for you. And so our associate producer, Stephanie, has been a great addition to the she team. She went deep, Stephanie, She on went this. deep. There's a she lot of... Deep. I think she's a big fan of Dante, by the way, because there's a lot of Dante in here. But just for those that are unfamiliar, I would imagine... This is a Dante translation well, Neapolitan. Dante revolutionized Partially. the language. He did. He, def- he created it. I mean, it. He, yeah. He, he, he was the one who took Fiorentino. Oh, bro, you, you got a lot of background in this. I just yeah. realized that. Yeah. Kind for those of. that don't know, Ro, although she is the... First lady of Italian American entertainment nowadays. Well, is your background's in education. My background is uh, well, I was an Italian literature major and I uh, minored in secondary education. So I was going to teach my people's <laughs> Italian. But you refused to teach Pat Molay, see? What is I that? Teach, <laughs> teach Italian, you traitor. Could we do a, a, an episode where teach Pat Molay's? Yes. But it should be a video episode. Yes, that's perfect. How do you say what then is father, right? What then? What then? What then? What then? <laughs> uh. be- I love what then. Molly, it is beautiful. Molly's is all about the uh sounds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Pat, do your Moffat's impression. Moffat. <laughs> we went to Moffat. you all the same? I mean, like, I want to say, uh. like, you, all, you all can tell one from the other. To me, it's all... It's all buddies to you. It's all buddies to you. That it's would all, be a great that's t-shirt. A, that's that a shirt. It's Can all buddies to me. Can you what then? What then? What then? But then you have to... Oh, wow. And so I was on our... on uh, Neapolitan's on, all bad. So I was on our t-shirt website the other day, Italian Power Store, and I was trying to order some t-shirts, and John made some really, really fun designs. One that says Pugliese. Yeah. He did another one with the entire panorama of Mola di Bari and, like, an octopus sitting in a boat That's and stuff. Right. I forgot to order that one. I don't know if I put that one back up. Did I? 
I don't. I didn't see it. Are these limited editions? No, they're there for everybody. They're, th- that's the talk molazy to me because Pat always. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. What yes. I really wanted to have, and I may do if I go back. In the Has store. anybody bought a talk molazi? I don't think it's t-shirt. up. I think it was up before we took it. Wait, down. Wait, how many Kitamu T-shirts have sold? That's a great question. I gotta check. There's there's a fabulous fabulous T-shirt that was a, a Christmas present for many men in my family <laughs> this right. year, and it was the Kitemu T-shirt. And on the Can back you it says, "Explain to them what Kitemu." I can't. No. You know, I, I, <laughs> if you I don't know, you don't ask. know. <laughs> I want them to ask honestly. I want you to write yeah. it in and ask, and I will personally respond to each and every one of That's you. Fair. Longo will forward me the emails, and I promise to write a detailed note to each of you. If you Kita want to know. is if a you... serious conversation. Mm-hmm. I would have a whole back, conversation. We, on and it. on the back it says Estra. It is a good yeah, shirt. It'd be interesting to see, for those that are longtime listeners of the show, if you go to italianpower.com and visit our store, uh, hopefully you like the shirts. Many of you guys have bought them, and if you wear them, send us a picture. We'd love to use it on our social media and spread the word. The store's but helping us build the infrastructure. It's big. It's very important. All the money raised goes to helping us build this company, and the fun thing is, if you really know the show, you get to go in and kind of see if you can tell who of each of us has either designed or inspired different I, I, shirts? I've never been on. I've never no, been you, in I know. Store. No, but there's a couple of shirts dedicated to you. I wouldn't even know. I but know. I'm happy like that. Yeah, it's good. But the I Ghostbusters think one. The Pignoli Busters is a big one. Yeah, is it really one? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing. This is a Pignoli free podcast. Um, I wish I had the time to go shopping for a Pignoli nut free T-shirt. I've made it just for you, so I made it very easy. But. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the history of... Let's talk about Basti and East. <laughs> no, stop. No, we have to. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the Italian language. So, uh, you know, comes from Latin. Everybody should Can understand Can I be angry that. today? Because I'm just... I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm, this is not going to be a happy... It, there's a disease in the city. You're a little testy. I get it. That's fine. No, I think uh, St. Rocco's coming back big time. <laughs> I saw Marco Antonio Pezzano saying, like, hey, let's take St. Marco. What about St. Saint Joseph? Out. Is he good for plagues? Uh, he was famine in Sicily. That he was helped yeah. the in famine, times of famine. The, if the shelves keep running out, we may Do be... Do you know how St. Yeah. Joseph wound up in Sicily? The Spanish. That makes sense. St. Teresa of Avila was the guy, the, the woman who put him back on the map. That makes sense. I can see that. That's a whole other... Op- we should do a St. Joseph episode. We really should, yeah. Um, as the holiday approaches. Uh, I feel like stuff got right now. No, I, we got to get this done. No. Let, let's go back and just get a little bit of history of the language here, because... Everybody should understand Italian is derived from Latin, which is an Italic uh, language of the Indo-European linguistic family. It's the oldest and closest Romance language to Latin, or Italian varieties are. Sardinian, actually, is also pretty close to the original Latin. And really, it's based off the vulgar Latin spoken by the people, as opposed to the sort of classical, traditional written Latin, which was used by governments in the can church. I, can I jump in with a yeah, yeah. Latin conversation? Yeah, yeah, sure. Now... And there's people out there who are Latin experts, so please, yeah. I'm, I'm in no way. But you're Latin pretty expert. good, though. Uh, yeah, I can good. read my way through yeah. a missile. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I could perform a mass in Latin. Yeah, I'm convinced. Easily. Ecclesiastical. Easily. And he's a good ecclesiastical singer, too. Domnia secula seculorum. Amen. So you were going to say, <laughs> what were you going to say? If you guys need your Hax child Domini. symbolically baptized <laughs> yeah, in get, Latin by Pat, he will do it for a very nominal <laughs> fee. Again, all proceeds go towards building the Italian-American <laughs> podcast. But he's got the cassock. He's got everything. He'll show up. He, he'll bring candles from South Dakota. Yes. He knows where to get them. Yes. I have a, don't give away, I have a personal, my German candle maker. Ecclesiastical right. candle maker. And he will come, he'll take a picture with the baby. <laughs> 
The whole nine yards. It'll look like uh, the 1950s. Like, again, this is not a real <laughs> baptism by any means, but it's more of an, yeah. an Italian-American yes. cultural it's baptism. Idea. It's like, you know, getting married in church and then having the big party. Maybe you, like, get the kid baptized in the new mass, and then you have, like, the old Italian version. It's like a ceremony. Just yeah. two sick people. <laughs> well, talk yeah. about Latin. Go ahead. There's the different Latin pronunciation. Well, there's the, there's the classical school. There's the germ also called the Germanic school, that says that the V's are W's, mm-hmm. and the G's are hard. Um, the H's are pronounced so um, hock, right? Um, which is this, this. Um, and there's the ecclesiastical Latin has an Italian pronunciation, right? So ecclesiastical Latin is like if you take an Italian and have them read Latin. So the H is silent, the W becomes a V, and the G becomes soft. So what's happened is that the conversation now is that the idea was, okay, well, the Germans and the Poles, the ones that have this pronunciation of Latin, they're just Northern Europeans, and and they pronounced Latin with a Northern European um, accent accent almost. And that the Italians had the real pronunciation. But now... Studying graffiti, and I think Pompeii, inside of Campania, they see that the Romans were making fun of the Neapolitans at the time mm. because they pronounced the Latin in the ecclesiastical Roman way. Wow. So they pronounced the V like a V. Mm-hmm. They pronounced the G as soft. They dropped off the H. So the Romans are making fun of the Neapolitans for speaking the way the Latin is spoken today ecclesiastically or how it's pronounced all through Italy. And the argument today is that the real Latin pronunciation, the way the Romans sounded, was the way the Germans pronounced it. Wow. Because what's happened is, if you take France, Romania, Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, the Romance part of Switzerland, all the Romance languages, they evolved. So the way they pronounced things evolved. But German was always Germanic. So the argument is that when Latin words enter German, the Germans pronounced it the way that they heard it pronounced by the Latins of the time, right. Latin speakers. So that's why the Germans don't say Cesare, they say Kaiser. Wow, that's fascinating. Wow. I did not it's know odd. that. So that the idea that's is why that, Pat is on the show, yeah, that's guys. Right. That's why he's the Wikipedia. So the, the idea is that the German, like, like wine, how do you say wine in German? Wine, mm. the, the, the W pronunciation of wine in German, the reason we say wine, instead of Wien, is because the Germans are pronouncing the V the way the Romans did as a W. That's amazing. That is really fascinating. They think that the Germans are the time capsule of Roman pronunciation. Like we are for a lot of Southern Italian regional right. languages. Why I'm happy, it shows that the Neapolitan pronunciation One out. came to dominate. <laughs> well, that's a good, you bring up a good point, right? Latin is born in Lazio, Latium, the area around Rome. And as the empire spreads, you know, people sort of take for granted that Italy just sort of was a peninsula that started with Rome and spread out. But the truth is the Romans encountered very, very well-developed cultures all along the peninsula and into the northern valleys and, and towards the Alps. And so modern Italian is based off of a Latin that was affected by local languages spoken by pre-Italic peoples for centuries. I mean, the province is called Latina. Yeah, it's definitional to where the place is. Another theory that has evolved is that the reason why quote-unquote dialects, regional languages evolved the way they did was, the Latins went in and conquered local tribes. So, for instance, Sanites, the Sanites tribes, and the Oscans, who were in Campania, they, the Oscans are probably the proto-people of 
They were what Native Americans are to the United States. They right. were the first people in Campania, in Naples. And over time, their culture, the Sanites, were penetrated by the Phoenicians, by the Greeks, and last by the Romans. But the theory is that they weren't good at endings. And that's why in Italian, you would say parlando, right? right. Parlando for speaking. Neapolitan, parlando. parlando. And that double end sounding, they think, came from the Oscans. So we've seen written Oscan. We know Oscan yeah. was written. And it just became like any dominant language. People stopped speaking Oscan. I probably had an ancestor. <laughs> fighting the Campania, good fight. Fighting, dying for Oscan. Why are you speaking Latin, you savage? You should be speaking our own beloved Oscan. <laughs> and the, the schwa sound, remember, Neapolitan is the, is the language of Italy that has the, oh, the, oh, the, oh. And that E dot dot schwa sound, they think, came from the Oscans as well. So what happened is Oscans starts to speak bad Latin. And, I mean, Oscan, Oscan influence Campania, right, right, yeah. which is a little bit of Phoenician, a little bit of yeah, Greek, yeah. a little bit of mixed salad. But the Oscan way of butchering Latin became Neapolitan. That makes sense. I mean, that's the beauty of language. It, our history really is written in it. And if you have the time, diligence, expertise to dig through, you can learn a lot about where your people came from by how they speak today. And that's why I love... Look at Neapolitan. Neapolitan, not... Cry. Uh, yeah, cry. Right? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Cross. And then in Molly's, it's cr. So Neapolitan has the word for tomorrow, which is the, origi- the original Latin word. Now, it's kind of died out. It's gone. Yeah. We, how it's do gone. you say the day after tomorrow? Poscrai. We say Puscra. Puscra. Wow. The day post yeah. cross. Yeah. The day after tomorrow. So the Latin word post cross, the day after tomorrow, poscrai. It's amazing, isn't it? And you're going you're gonna to love this because as we talk about how Latin develops uh, its global footprint or what was the known world then, a little victory for Campania again. The earliest surviving documents in the vulgar vernacular Latin, the way it was spoken, are called the Placiti Cassinesi, and they're four official documents written between the years 960 and 963 about a dispute on lands owned Benedictine. Yeah, Benedictine Monastery. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And so they're considered the oldest existing documents in vernacular Latin. Just so people understand what those documents were, monasteries, what happened is when people would die, they would donate land to the monasteries. Mm -hmm. Say, pray for me when I'm gone. Take some land. And the rents of those lands maintain the monasteries. So you've had the ecclesiastical Latin, right? Everybody spoke ecclesiastical Latin. It was the working language of, of universities. You know, Holland um, still taught, I think, well into the 20th century. University classes were still in Latin. Wow. I mean, Holland was the last country to give it up. But the reason I bring up these documents is that the abbot, you know, the, the monastery would have had dealings with local land renters who probably wouldn't have had the education to be able to speak, you know, business Latin, official Latin. Because the monasteries survived on the rents that were coming in from these lands. So it's, 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 it's almost like the monasteries meeting the blue-collar guy. That's pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. And it, it's interesting that you, know, you have the earliest document in Campania, and then, as far as I understand it, and I don't think it's been disproven, the oldest academy of any of the Italian languages was in Palermo, in Sicily, founded by Roger II, the Sicilian school. I mean... Sicilian really 
was gunning mm-hmm. to be the vernacular of Italy. Yeah, it was probably the first very distinct language to break off from the uh, Latin base. Like uh, these other languages developed after. It's probably the oldest Italianate language. And wow, Sicilian. Yeah, and and influenced by Greek, the major parts of the island Greek, influenced by Arab. Uh, very heavily, 200 years of Arab domination of the island. Mm-hmm. And so Roger II, the first Norman king, who we've talked about on a lot of episodes, founds this, founded a lot of stuff. I mean, the guy was an amazing, amazing, world-changing figure who doesn't get studied nearly enough and deserves a, a, a series of episodes. He could have built the United Italy. He came close. He came close. Really close. I mean, it, that's... The papal a, states were in the middle, but had, they, had not been the papal states... Yeah. The uh, capital of Italy right now might be Palermo. We'd all be speaking. Uh, I'd be complaining about rye being uh, all in Sicilian. <laughs> so and let me Apollo just close my eyes and picture a Sicilian Italy. <laughs> but uh, Dante, who we're getting to now, right, who, who redefines what Italian is, Dante was a member of the Sicilian school. and Was he really? Yeah, and really considered, you know, Dante creates Italian, right, out of the Florentine dialect. And I love the term volgare. Yeah. Because it's so much more fitting than vernacular because whenever I have this conversation with uh, an Italian from Italy and I have it a lot (laughs) um, about what acceptable terms are and I find myself always uh, explaining myself like well in you know Italian American vernacular the accepted vernacular is uh, you know this this or this and it's something that they really just don't understand but in my mind when I when my mind does the translation uh, vernacular just isn't a very fitting word to me. So when I'm explaining something like, oh, why do you tell people that, you know, the the, the word is agida or something? You know, because I say, well, in, in our Italian-American vernacular, it's a colloquialism, and the accepted vernacular is agida. We, do, we, we just don't even think very much about What's it. What's the alternate? Acido. Oh, jeez. So it's acid, but acida is something else. And they're like, well, why don't you just say acido, acid? It's like, because it doesn't have the same meaning to me. Because there are just certain things that can only be expressed in a dialect or a regional language. Completely true. They don't have the same inflection when you use the the proper word, the real word or something. And then it goes back to what is real and what is fake. Yeah. So, you know, there are just certain things that can only be expressed in dialectual terms. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Because agida doesn't just mean an acid in your stomach. It means somebody upset you, annoyed you, yeah. whatever. It, it, you know, only Italian-Americans yeah, right. really can attribute a physical ailment to something that somebody else did to me. Ajita is not something that <laughs> you true. get from right. eating a sauce. It's something You're that right. like, you know, your one of your kids gave your brother in law is trying to it's take true. your property. So you got Ajita from this. <laughs> so true. That's really true. And in the second half of this episode, we're gonna talk a lot about some of these words. And then I think it deserves its own episode, a glossary, because there's fascinating yeah. histories of these words. And you're right. They mean something based on a hundred plus years of social experience. And and they deserve to be recognized for that. The only other language, and probably even much more than ours, that's had an impact on American spoken English today, uh, maybe more in the New York area, is Yiddish. Totally. Ah, and Yiddish, I love Yiddish. was yeah. like kind of wiped out in Europe during World War II and the Holocaust. So there was Eastern Yiddish, which was spoken in you know Poland and Lithuania and Eastern Europe. And then there was Western Yiddish that was spoken in France. That that was dead a long time out. 
But, you know, the modern state of Israel, the working language, if you want to say what was the most practical language, should have been Yiddish. Yeah, that makes sense. But if they brought Yiddish in, the Sephardim didn't have a Yiddish tradition. So now you're trying to make a United State of Israel, and you're getting Jews from North Africa, Jews from Iraq, from all Sephardic countries. How are you going to take the language of Ashkenazi Jews, the European Jews, and, and kind of impute that on North African Jews and Middle Eastern Jews? But the reason I bring it up is that Hasidic communities have kept Yiddish alive. It's funny that you bring it up because it actually speaks to where we're going with the idea of Tuscan and Florentine becoming Italian because Dante made a decision much to the same way that the state of Israel did upon its founding to revive or create a new Hebrew because it is a new Hebrew created. It's really Israeli Hebrew. Um, It's based on historic precedent. But Dante basically made the same decision in his writing that he was going to create a standardized Italian, understandable by everyone on the peninsula, and it was going to be based on Florentine because he felt that that had the most available source material that had been distributed throughout the peninsula. And so he, he really does make the decision and, and leaves. I don't know if he actually leaves. I mean, we don't know enough to know if he actually like walks out of the Sicilian school. But he founds this language in Florence, a city that he saw as a um, an intermediary between the north and the south. And many of the other writers from Tuscany at that point started to help establish it as a lingua franca, if you will. And they found in 1582 the Academia della Crucia. I know very little about this. I'm not, you know, but it's like the Language Academy of France. It's the oldest legislative body for language in the world, and it works to maintain the purity of the Italian language today. Can you imagine if Italy had that? It is. It's Italy. No, but I mean, if Italy really, I mean, it'd be like Shakespearean Italian. (laughs) <laughs> it would never change. If it really had like the powers that the French Academy does. No, it's got none, none of the same relationships. That's fact, what I'm saying, but the French Academy can actually get stuff huge, done. Huge, huge. I mean, they, but they the make Italians up words. wouldn't change anything. No, the, the, nobody's following. They would be still speaking. They, they'd be speaking the, the vernacular of Dante. As a matter of fact, in 2011, the whole Academia was actually threatened because Tremonti and Berlusconi actually introduced a proposition to do away with these publicly funded entities if they had less than 70 members. And... This academia did have less than 70 members and obviously survived. But it's interesting, again, you know, you, you got to love being Italian. We've got the oldest university in the world. We've got the oldest language academy. We've oftentimes got the prototype to what's then spread around the world. So needless to say, there's writers from Tuscany like Boccaccio, Petrarch, Machiavelli, uh, Gucciardini, all of these Tuscans who really contribute to Dante's movement. But the, the language spreads as a language of trade, as a language of literature in, in many cases, but it doesn't become really a spoken language until the Italian unification. Uh, Italy, as we all know, unifies in 1859 to 1861, really, uh, during what's called the Risorgimento. And frankly, most Italians at that point did not speak this version that would become Italian. There's only 2.5% of Italy's population. They still, a lot of them still don't speak it. True. <laughs> that's true. You're right. I mean, a lot of them still don't. That, that's the sort of un, unspoken secret. But in 1861, only 2.5% of the population even spoke this thing. But it was the, I mean, it was the it was kind of the lingua franca of the peninsula. It was. I mean, look at all the court documents from southern Italy. I collect these things. They're all written in Italian. Yeah, absolutely. Because there was so much linguistic diversity in the South. And another thing that you think about, like, you know, the, the sad history of Sicily and the fall of the Normans and a lot of things that could have happened, right? 
had the Sicilian Academy, the Sicilian school survived, a standardized written Sicilian would have happened a lot sooner. A standardized written Neapolitan is still an issue. This is part of the reason why it's so hard to teach these languages today, because when Dante sets out to standardize Italian and the academy is founded in Florence, you start saying, okay, this is how it's spelled. This is how it's said. These are the rules. They may be artificially imposed, but sometimes artificial imposition, like the French, is the only way to keep a language uh, academically pure or even to keep it around. I think the difference is the fact. That, well, no, but can I go off about France yeah. a moment? France exterminated its regional languages. Yes, very consciously. Uh, absolutely exterminated it. The countries went out of Paris. I mean, France is really the first real nation state. Yep, absolutely. They've tried to resurrect the nearly extinct French region. Breton languages. and all these languages. Are, yeah. And I mean, I mean, Bre- I think Breton's in a little bit better situation, yeah. but Occitan. I mean, but a huge amount of the French population going into Spain spoke. Uh, I never pronounce it. Occitan. I don't know. Occitan. Occitan. And Occitan. Um, Occitan. There you go. Wow. And you know when the Virgin oh. Mary, the the apparition at Lourdes is an Occitan. Really? She says Yo soy the Immaculate Conception. That's amazing. I had no idea. Yes, the Virgin Mary spoke to Bernadette Subaru in Occitan. Wow, I had no idea. Yes, that's a. Ama- I had. No, that's a really fascinating. Sure, the apparitions were all in Occitan, so that's how strong the language was then. But France, being France, um, even the Catalan parts of France. I mean, think about this: Northern Catalonia is in France. Mm-hmm. And the language is nowhere there what it is in Spain. Even even Corsica. The French went and destroyed Corsican. Yeah. Corsican, and I mean, Corsican's much closer to Tuscan Italian than it is oh, to French. Absolutely. I mean, Corsica should be part of Italy. Yeah. And that's just... And Sardinia. I mean, the beauty of Sardinia is, like, you go to Sardinia now, there's still plenty of towns that speak uh, Catalan dialect. Uh, and, you know, let me just define this right away, because... Dialect, regional languages, they're loaded words, but actually there's a, kind of an interesting definition. A regional language is a language family. So like Neapolitan is a regional language because there's many, many parts of Italy that speak Neapolitan. Campania, Northern Calabria, Abruzzo, they speak in the Neapolitan regional language family. Then the dialects, which get used politically as a sort of nasty word, it's not really a nasty word. It basically means... Within the Neapolitan language family, there's Calabrese, Calabro Neapolitan, there's Campanian, there's Salernitana, there's different dialects. I mean, there's Torre del Greco. Exactly. Torre del Greco, which is right next to Naples, is a different language. They don't say, I speak Neapolitan, they speak Torres. Yeah, look at, I mean, our. I mean, Torres is its own phraseology. And a shout out to our associate producer, Stephanie, from Guardia Lombardi. The, the Guardese is its own. Dialect sure. of Neapolitan. I, I saw her dictionary. I was stunned. I mean, there's certain words. Yeah. But, you know, welcome to Italy. I mean, look, I, I remember one time as a kid uh, getting a calendar from a friend of ours. I've seen that calendar. It's in Sanzesi, and that's amazing to me. It's not Neapolitan. It's, you know, a couple hours now from Naples. It's part of Campania. But back <laughs> before uh, railroad and highways, it was not an easy task to get to these places. So local dialects are very, very strong. The reason why Italy is what it is, in my opinion, is the geography. Completely. thousand percent. The mountains created small, isolated towns that got an identity of themselves. Yep. And they're big enough, just enough to recycle a gene pool. Yeah, it's true. Just enough that you can, within three or four generations, you can remarry a cousin. Combined with the fact that even in the interior of the country, because the peninsula is so thin, these conquests from the coast, I mean, people had to move these towns to their fortresses. So if you fortify yourself, it's like, you know, Venetian, right? The Venetian 
language culture, it's all born out of a Latin culture in the northeastern parts of Italy that fled from the Germanic invasions into the lagoon that they knew how to navigate and nobody else did. So this fortification creates a complete ossification for language that is rampant throughout Italy. And that's why one town says Domani, one town says Craia. That's, you know, next to each other. But I, I think it's really the Italian state that starts to, long after the unification, frankly, focus on creating a standardized language. So a lot of civil servants were recruited from all over different parts of Italy, moved consciously, you know, men that served in the army at that point were put into originally regional units and then quickly realized nobody could understand each other. Most of the officer corps was Piemontese because it was a Piemontese royal family that had a long martial tradition that took over the country. So They, they were kind of like the Prussians. They were, exactly, yeah. They Piemonte just, is like the Prussia of Italy. 100%. They just did a less good job. Really. Wow. <laughs> That's really true, right? I mean, they, they had all the administration, most of the first prime ministers, most of the military. Most of the military leadership was Piemontese through the First World War. I mean, and even really into the second. It's it's only in the Republic era that this starts to change. But this is really when language starts to transfer. And it's interesting because a lot of the words we take for granted come from what were regional languages, like Venetian, spoken in the Veneto, which was clearly its own language. The word chow comes from Venice. Chavo, slave, I am your slave. That, that's the greed. Really, it's true. That's where it comes from. I have never used the word chow. I will never use the word chow. It's not Southern. It's a fa- It's another fake. I mean, I, I guess it's... Evolved. Well, it's real in Venice. No, well, it's taken off in South America. It's taken off everywhere. I, mean, I use it here in the U.S. You ever go to Beverly Hills? Ah, oh, chow. You get people do it all the time. But, I mean, it, it's interesting to see how these words come from different regions throughout the unification of Italy. And you see the change in mandatory schooling. What used to be church schools are subsumed by the state. They're run in modern Italian. You see the beginnings of this language becoming... A truly national language. The Habsburgs. Now, if you want to talk about a, a people with a linguistic issue, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had like 19. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Right, I'm not talking about regional languages. No, I'm no, talking no. about constituent nations. Yeah, sure. So they had, I mean, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you had German, Hungarian, Slovakian, Polish, Serbian, Croatian, Croatian, Slovenia. Yeah, Italian. Right, Italian. And the Habsburgs kept Latin as the working language. How could you not? I think in the military it was German uh, for the leadership. But, you know, these regiments, I mean, it's the same thing in Italy, right? You you, you have this unification, and they take on... Well, th- that's why the, in the Catholic Church, the bishops of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were renowned to be the excellent Latinists. It came easy to the Italians because it was just like Italian with an accent. Right. You know, like it was just kind of working. <laughs> right, yeah. But the Austro-Hungarians actually used it all the time. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think it was Vatican I, which was 1870. Everybody was like, the Austro-Hungarian bishops came in, which are from all those countries, Slovenia, southern Poland, Slovakia, and they're like um, having conversational Latin. And, you know, no one else can keep up with them. And they're like, well, you don't, you, you know, you don't use Latin the way we do. <laughs> it's true. So within, within well into the 20th century, those places, they were like the last death throes of actually using Latin. Like I said earlier, uh, Dutch universities. Yeah. They were well into the 20th century still teaching in Latin. It's pretty amazing to see how long it's, I mean, I learned Latin in grade school. It was mandatory in my Catholic school. I know in a lot of them today, they don't even think about using it. It's referred to as a dead language. I know, it's but a shame. Latin teaches you grammar. Sure, it teaches you a lot. But grammar's out 
door too. So that's true like, too. Yeah, know. along with handwriting. I'm surprised I even remember how to use a pen. That's true. That's yeah, a good. That, that's it's, how it's, it's you know. Yeah, I that's mean, true. That's <laughs> true. The pen's gonna disappear. When was the last time you sat down and wrote something out? You know, most people. I always write. I'm yeah, you writing. okay? You you do a lot of things people don't always do. That's true. Yeah, me and Pat, we 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 do throwback stuff. But you know, you talk about this evolution away from the Latin, and you talk about Italian becoming a language. It's really post World War II with the rise of because even radio didn't affect the language as much as television did. Uh, event television is oh, such an event based, yeah. And so was, as radio and television spread throughout Italy, that's why we usually say the radio stayed local. Italian. Radio it stayed local. Yeah. yeah. Some famous Italian commented that he left. And while he left home, let's say within six months, his father bought a television. And he said when he came home after six months, his father was speaking differently. It's amazing. It's the it's the vehicle for change. No, no, Romana has been here for 60 years. She's been watching People's Court ever <laughs> since it came on the air. She didn't learn English <laughs> entirely. Because she could survive with Italian, right? I mean, it, she doesn't have to speak English. Actually, that's a lie. So, fun fact, Norma Romana used to go and sit in the audience at People's Court. Where is that? Back when she was mobile. It was by uh, <laughs> it was by Herald Square. And I'm I'm kidding. She actually did improve her English considerably. Through People's Court. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But this is a vehicle. I mean, this is why, you know, we this is why we're doing videos on YouTube because it's a great teaching vehicle. It's easy for people to access. It's easier today than ever. But in Italy after the war, like you say, Radio might have stayed local, but, you know, people don't understand. Rai was a monopoly. There were not independent TV channels until the 90s. So the state chose what went out. You had three options. I mean, we, we complain yeah, here like state, right, CBS, right, NBC. And Rai liked yeah. it. Yeah. Rai liked having a, having a um, monopoly on the, on, the, on the public discussion. Sure. And so that we, we often bemoan the fact that there's no regional language television in Italy, but there was an independent television until really the 90s. So, If we want to talk about this on a bigger level, I mean, there's not very much regional language entertainment in the country no. of Italy. No, it's not. There hasn't been until Instagram. Yeah. You want to know what changed the complete landscape of that? Instagram. Correct. Yeah, you're right. Facebook, Instagram, Instagram's Twitter. Think about what that's done to impact. Let's talk a little bit about Italian today before we finish this episode. Right now in the world, about 58 million people in Italy speak Italian. On top of that, 24,000 San Marino, uh, 840,000 in Switzerland, and about 5 million in North and South America. There's still some little pockets in Libya, Somalia, Eritrea. I got to experience the Eritrean Italian when I got to visit there. Um, it is the official language of San Marino, Vatican, and also one of the official languages of Switzerland, with little communities spread throughout like Croatia and Slovenia. But the truth is, as Roe points out, that language, those 58 million people, they have been getting monopolized entertainment for a long time. And the internet explosion, I mean, you're seeing these... Changed everything. Unbelievable. Oh, I agree. I Look do you know that... So, um, Domenico Modugno is from Polignano Mare, right next door to Moladibari. Do you know that he, like, would hide that he was from Polignano? Isn't that crazy? That he was so deeply Southern. And he w- it totally impacted how he spoke, how he sang... He had to really be careful when he would start doing rye that he wouldn't let any twinge of wow, Pugliese out. And now, I mean, you know, I'm a diehard Pugliese and I love Pugliese languages. And I mean, I can count on one hand how many successful 
Pugliese comedians and or actors there are. Right now I can think of two that are huge. There's Ucho DeSantis that was fortunate to get on uh, television, sort of mainstream television, uh, fairly early on, maybe the late 90s. But, you know, they never let these people in the front, you know, they're not front runners. And then there's Johnny Colayema that actually has a, uh, a fabulous theater company, the Baryon theater in body and performs plays in Barese. That's awesome. And he actually has a really cool play called Un Barese in New York. He did a a really cool production here in the States uh, last year. And I was fortunate enough to go see it, but you know, these people never get airtime. No, but think about that's the standard throughout the Western world, right? I mean, even in the U S you don't get many, anchors who aren't speaking in like a Connecticut Yankee yeah, English. Well, actually, the Pacific Northwest accent is it has it been is? declared the wow. like non-regional yeah. voice. So whenever you try and become like a news anchor, they send you to that part of the country to train. Or, you know, th- where do they send you? They send you to Montana. That's crazy. They send you into into the Pacific Northwest. I don't know where the hell Montana and it is. Ra- it, 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 it enrages me. It, it enrages me when I hear like New York one Brooklyn and yeah. no one talks like that. From I Brooklyn. agree with you. And and look, <laughs> we're we're both from Brooklyn. You're a Jersey City. Uh, no, my di- English, my dialect is, is Jersey Brooklyn, City, which is which Brooklyn. is a Brooklyn branch. Correct. Correct. So my point is, this stuff is dying. Like, I was watching a video on Bernie Sanders speaking, and they were it was I think it was Vox or some channel on YouTube, and they were analyzing his Brooklynese. And how much it's dying and how, you know, where he puts emphasis and using the H and this and that. And I thought to myself, I remember moving to New Jersey, uh, not part of the Jersey City diaspora. We moved to an Irish town in central Jersey. And my teacher in third grade making everybody in the class say Bing every time I dropped the G at the end of a, of a word like doing, going. And I was really. Is she still around? Well, she ended up being great. She was an Italian lady. I didn't Where is she? She's. I hope she's still alive. Who knows? I'd love to track her down and have coffee with her. But she said and to tell me. tell her how she messed No, she said to me when I got older. She said to me when I got older, listen, I was Italian. She, her last name was Polish. She married a Polish guy. She said, I really wanted you to avoid what I suffered when I moved out here from Brooklyn. Might not have been the best methods, but this was Catholic school in the 80s. So, you know. Uh, but my point being, I thought about how hard I worked to get away from my Brooklynese accent. And... Sometimes my parents still say words very Brooklynese, you know. We're in the most PC world imaginable. And the one stigma that continues is against American regional accents. Yeah. I refuse to speak the way they do. I will never, ever sell out who I am and where I came from. I mean, I used to be an actor and... Back then, you know, weren't you, you an actress? When did this happen? It's uh, an they're all actors. <laughs> why, can't, why, why, why do we get rid it's of like the, the Screen feminine... Actors Guild? Yeah, but actors... I didn't make it up. I don't care. Fine, call it whatever you want. But like when I was auditioning, it, it, you know, I was very aware of my Brooklyn accent. Yeah. But it was funny because I grew up in a house with parents who both had accents, different degrees of accents. Yeah. I had no idea they had accents until I started going to school in New Jersey. Completely, because yeah. even in Brooklyn, everybody's parents had yeah. an accent. And then when I started auditioning, I was painfully aware of that I didn't really talk like everybody else. And my mom was an actor, too. And she definitely didn't talk like everybody else. And it was very limiting. My mother actually managed to have a pretty successful career was all things considered. But now that, you know, Viceland is on the air and Brooklyn is, you know, the the uh, center of cool, center of cool, if you will. Now it's OK to have a Brooklyn accent. Yeah. Now it's OK to like let yeah, the but freak why, flag fly. You don't have a brain surgeon 
with a Brooklyn accent. He has that Pacific Northwest accent, and our accents are reserved for stupid people on shows. I am sick of walking in the room and being pigeonholed as somehow less than. Now you're right. Or you know, less intellectual because I, I, yeah. I don't speak like you're that. You're totally right. So I, I, I refuse to have to like go to Minnesota boot camp <laughs> or uh, you know Portland, Oregon boot camp <laughs> To sound like them, because th- th- what is what is that? What is the message that comes with that? They're a little bit what? better than me. But today I'm it's ne- different. Never. Today I don't, it's different. And I don't with, think so. And, and this new, you know, era. I, when, when we has have when so we much. have a television show that has the brain surgeon or the mathematician or another highly intellectualized profession with someone with my accent, then I'll take that. But I walk into a room with an automatic stigma that I'm not that smart. And I don't even hear my accent. Everyone tells me I have an accent. If I hear myself, I know I have an accent. That's why I don't, I, I don't like listening to the podcast. I hear my own accent. And I, maybe even I drank the Kool-Aid that I'm somehow less than because they've told me that. I so know when I, I went to grammar accent. school, I'm not, I gotta go, when I went to grammar school, I went through the same thing as John. It was humiliating. They took us to these speech. It was like going to these camps. Yeah, yeah. And I like to find all these people today and just ridiculed <laughs> me for speaking the way that I heard at home. So, all right. So then, what are you trying to say? My grandmother's stupid. Yeah, well, look, we're, we're living the I, same so, thing. And I'm, I, I really don't as now, these regional languages, right? And so, and that's why I get so connected with it because I'm sick of going to other parts. This is why I like to leave New Jersey. I like to be with my own people because <laughs> I go to other parts of the country, and then all of a sudden I'm a dummy. Yeah, I, right. I see. So, oh, like I, I've had great experiences with people from Utah. If you're from Utah, the first one, oh, are you in the mafia? Like, what? Yeah. It just it's. It's 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 a degree of ignorance yeah, it is. that I cannot even begin to touch because if I had any other kind of specialness to me, of, of distinction for me anywhere else in the world, oh my God, that's like so cool that you speak. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, can you say that again? Can you say bag? How do you say bag? <laughs> Coffee? I hate. I I don't like you. If you listen to this, please <laughs> shut off because you've made my life complicated. And then like, so you know what someone said to me once. I can't believe how intelligent he is. When I first heard him speak, I would never have thought he was smart. There you go. Go shove a gazagaval where the sun <laughs> doesn't shine. Well. So you know what? I, and you know the Jersey City accent is dying. It's yeah, dead. they're all gone. They're all dying. Right? Me and my cousins are the last one that have it. Stu- kids coming out from Jersey today do not have that accent. And I want to thank you, Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and Washington, and all, all you waspy Minnesota people. Well, who made this decision? I mean, maybe it's not fair to blame them. Maybe someone else told them we're going to all sound like you. You know who should really be enraged? The people of the South, the You're United kidding, States. Yeah. Because CBS in the 60s had Beverly Hillbillies yeah. and Green Acres. Well, it's Naples. That, right, like, correct. Look, look at the Neapolitan language, right, when the nanny is transferred over to Italy, right? Because Italy loves to dub American stuff. A lot of countries recreate yeah, Italy doesn't want to read yeah. They take her over, and she's no longer the fish-out-of-water Queen's Jewish girl in a waspy family. Now she's a Neapolitan girl with a northern Italian family, and she speaks in Neapolitan. And it's equally laughable that she would be in this fish-out-of-water situation amongst these classy people. And that's, you know, that's... Ignorance. It's ignorance. It's ignorance. And ignorance. You know what? And, ignorance. And, and, and ignorance. So the film Parasite just won mm-hmm. every Academy Award. Ever. Very good movie. At your recommendation, we watched it. Yeah. So the thing is, though, in the movie Parasite, it's about classes, but you don't see this regional like outlook. Yeah. You know, it's just like the people that live in a slum, but yeah. they don't make it a regional thing. So that I, I think that tells you a lot about how other cultures look at class based on geography yeah it's totally true i mean 
Uh, and uh, just for reference, Parasite is set in South Korea. Yes, in, in Seoul, I think, right? I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's set in Seoul. Uh, I, I take a lot, of, and I think it's it's, and why I like to fashion us as the fresh air of of the Italian of the Italian American world. That's another one. We should we should have a T-shirt that says "Lari Fresh." Lari Fresh, Lari Fresh. So, um, in Neapolitan, be fresh because fresh would be my family's always fresh. Fresh, 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 yeah, chilly. But Ari is fresh because uh, the air, girls, Ari is air, fresh. Th- thank you. Um, the American South. Uh, now, sure, do they have a complicated history with racism, slavery, Jim Crow? Sure, they do, but they also have, you know, beautiful parts of their culture, right? They're not. It's not the South is not a one-trick pony, and their accents are probably closer in some ways to the original British inhabitants. And some of them are beautiful, and I mean, they're beautiful. So, I mean, my 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 friend's wife is from New Orleans, and I'm like, why don't you sound like you're from New Orleans? Like she worked, I worked my whole life not to sound like I'm from New Orleans. You're in your 20s. Although I will say. John has a enough, great New Orleans accent, the, by the way. <laughs> I did it for Row the other day. Uh, New Orleans, and I don't know the full linguistic history of why, is actually closer to Brooklynese than it is to other Southern dialects. Isn't that amazing? Probably because there was so many. I don't know. The the Spanish and the French. Maybe. And the, maybe. Maybe, the maybe, maybe so much transference, yeah. But we have now gone into an amazing conversation about American English and accents. And what we're going to come back to in the next episode We'll really sort of start off from this, which is the conversation about dialect, and we're going to evolve into that, and then Italian-American as its own distinct dialect. So from all of us here, I hope you've enjoyed part one of what is a really powerful conversation that I hope everybody's having, and uh, we'll be back next week with part two of our conversation on the Italian and Italian regional languages. See that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italian.